back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? Ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time to do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday, the second day of May. I know, yeah, May already flying by is uh, this calendar year so far. I had to start prepping for today's podcast about three or four days days ago rather than you know just sitting there on my Sunday night getting all my notes together making sure I had everything I wanted to talk about because there was just so much going on this week held very you know very much a positive vibes kind of Monday for yours truly I mean with the exception that is of the walking disaster that was the Brooklyn Nets that a week ago tonight put uh, themselves out of my misery. Kind of knew that was coming with uh, them getting swept by the Boston Celtics. But since then, you look around uh, this area, the Yankees on a nine-game winning streak, albeit against less than superior competition, but You can rule out a slow start by Aaron Judge. He's been on fire, and Cole's been great his last two starts. The Mets are in first place in not just the National League East, but the National League overall. You have our two baseball teams in uh, the tri-state area have the best two records in Major League Baseball. And then you've got the NFL draft where you're coming out of it a rare time with both the Giants and the Jet fans excited saying, can we get the season started already? Can we uh, get things going? Now, might be a bit aggressive take by both fan bases and these kids still haven't played games yet. They still haven't taken a, a a real NFL snap, played a real NFL down. But when you see what both teams were looking to accomplish, it's as close to a home run as possible, especially, you know, we knew it was going to be a big, <coughs> excuse me, night one for both of these teams. Because... Both teams had two picks in the top 10 of the first round. Uh, There was a lot of maneuverability with both teams, with the Jets especially having a lot of draft capital and the rumors that were out there about potentially trading for one Debo Samuel. Now, 
that would end up not being the wide receiver trade that went down in uh, night one. We would see uh, a couple of others take place. But overall, you walk away from this draft if you're both a Jets or Giants fan rather happy, rather excited, rather pleased with what you see taking place here. You First, you look at, at the Giants. The Giants with new general manager and Joe Sheen, uh, with a new head coach and Brian Dayball, wondering what they're going to do uh, with having two picks in the top seven of uh, this draft. And with... Uh, you know, it being a heavy emphasis on pass rushers and offensive linemen, the Giants get their draft their first true pass rusher since they drafted JPP over a decade ago with Kavon Thibel, who you th- you think about it uh, about six months ago, this kid was projected to possibly be the first overall pick in the draft, and you see this a lot. When going through the draft process, a lot of these scouts, oh, they start questioning someone's commitment to the game, start bringing up all sorts of off-the-field potential red flags, whatnot. But this kid was one of the most dominant edge rushers in the uh college ranks last year and it's something that the Giants have been missing for a while on uh, their uh, defensive line now you put them uh, right next to um, Williams Leonard Williams and it changes things up for him you know the with the fact that the Giants are running you know a three four mixing in a little bit of a four Two five, you've got to have some speed on the edge of uh, that defensive line. Now, it was also important for the Giants to address their offensive line, and they did that in both the first and third rounds, especially, most importantly, with their first-round pick taking Alabama's Evan Neal. And what's interesting about this is, you know, two years ago, they had drafted Andrew Thomas to play left tackle. But thankfully, this kid has versatility. You can move him over to the right side. And now you look at the Giants' offensive line, and you at least you hope you are locked down on your bookend tackles there for the next you know, six, seven years. You know, hopefully longer if you're a Giants fan because it doesn't matter who your quarterback is. If he has no time um, in the backfield, if he's got an edge rusher in his face all uh, the time, he's dead. And that was one of the things that helped Eli Manning so much through his career, not just his remarkable durability, but he had always had pretty reliable offensive line around him at least in the first half of his career when they were winning a couple Super Bowls now as happy as giant fans probably were with uh, their early draft returns 
know, as a Jet fan, I'm sitting there on Thursday night and I am, you know, I'm pinching myself. I'm, you know, I, re- I wake up on Friday and I'm like, someone tell me something negative. Someone say something, you know, to get me off my emotional high. Someone say something to me that gets me back into the the real world as far as being a Jet fan. Because night one and this draft in general could not have gone better if you're Joe Douglas, if you're Robert Sala and the New York Jets. Now, as the weeks were building up to this, I think a lot of Jet fans were getting their hopes set high for one player. And that, of course, was Ahmad Gardner, a.k.a. Sauce. Because, you know, the Jets really needed to upgrade in their secondary. They, they needed someone not just with size, but with attitude. You know, the, a presence in uh, the secondary for the Jets. And that, that's what you're getting in this kid. And you know, I'm sitting there, I'm watching these picks come off the board. I'm watching Trevon Walker go one, go uh, with Aiden Hutchinson at number two. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, the Texans are going to pick Sauce Gardner. They're going to get the top corner in this draft. And when they took Stingley, I'm thinking, wow, they just did the Jets a big favor. Because this is not to say that I think Stingley is going to be a bad player by any means. I just would prefer uh, Sauce Gardner. I think the floor with him is more of a surety than it is with Stingley. And I think there's bigger bust potential with uh, Derek Stingley than there is with uh, Sauce Gardner. So Jet fans on one end are, are happy there. Then we're sitting around thinking, all right, what happens with the number 10 overall pick? Are they going to trade it for Debo Samuel? Or or are they going to draft a wide receiver? Are they going to potentially trade back? Well, they got another weapon for Zach Wilson in Garrett Wilson. And listen, Jermaine Williams may have a higher upside, but he's coming off of a torn ACL. And that is a chance that the Jets, quite frankly, cannot take. And while he has size um, and is taller than uh, Garrett Wilson. Now, let's not act like the Jets just have a bunch of small wide receivers. Corey Davis um, is uh, six foot three. So he's still your number one guy while you have uh, Wilson and uh, Moore as your more inside guys and more, you know, speed threat guys. So overall, I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, the Jets fill two needs. You still got to see these guys play, but you get what most people are saying is the best corner in this draft. You get one of, if not the best wide receiver in this draft. And I'm you know, I'm watching, I'm, you know, I had nothing else on, so I'm continuing to pay attention, see what trades go down. And I'm thinking, you know, we have two second round picks. There's Joe Douglas possibly trade back in the first round and get someone, especially with 
certain names falling in this draft. The biggest one being Florida State uh, defensive end Jermaine Johnson. And in the as we enter the twenties, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and I see him still available. I'm thinking to myself, maybe. Do we try something here? Could we possibly get back into the first round? Well, unfortunately, after pick number 23, yours truly dozed off on the couch. And I wake up at around 1130 and look at my phone and I see the Jets traded back into the first round to select Jermaine Johnson. I'm like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. So in one night, the Jets draft probably the best corner in this draft, one of the best wide receivers, and one of the best edge rushers, adding three needs that they desperately needed to have for this team. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? I'm a Jet fan. I'm not supposed to have positive vibes. Someone bring me down from this emotional high. And, you know, the, the draft overall on paper looks pretty good for the Jets. With those three first-round picks, you draft a big running back in the, the second round in uh, Brees Hall. Then uh, with a third-round pick uh, that you got through a trade, you draft a, another tight end in Jeremy Rucker. Now, the, the Jets are putting pieces in place that you know sooner rather than later, they should be a competitive team. Now, it relies, as far as their success in 2022, I've been saying their success relies on three people making either growths or comebacks for them. One, most importantly, is Zach Wilson. As we know, you cannot go anywhere without a quarterback in this league. And they can't continue to go through this quarterback carousel where it's every three, four years, you're changing up um, who your quarterback is and expect to get anywhere in this league. So Zach Wilson, now that he's got Will, uh, another Wilson on this offense with him, you've got Elijah Moore. Hopefully um, he uh, continues to grow after his uh, solid rookie year. Corey Davis come back from injury. You re-signed Braxton Berrios, who was uh, one of his favorite targets as the season uh, goes along. You signed CJ Uzama at tight end. You've drafted uh, this other kid in Rucker uh, at, at tight end. You've got two good young running backs now in Michael Carter and Brees Hall and you know, there's really no excuses now. Now it's up to you. can't say you don't have weapons. Now, a lot of your success is also going to rely on the second person that I think is of importance in coming back for this team. And that's, of course, Makai Becton. He can't, he, you know, the videos that he sh is putting on Instagram right now have to be for real. He has to be fully dedicated to his craft and truly coming into sh 
camp in shape, not at 400 pounds and showing that all these videos were just, he dunked a t-shirt in a bucket of water and took a couple of 30 second videos in a gym to make it look like he's keeping in shape. Makai Becton, yeah, I know he got hurt, but that was a extreme disappointment for this team that he didn't p play beyond the first half of the opening game last year. And a lot of that was not just because of the injury, but because the injury was made worse with him being out of shape. And then third of all, of course, is finally seeing Carl Lawson play for this team. Now, it's one thing to draft Jermaine Johnson, but who knows if this kid is going to start right away. Carl Lawson was signed to be that edge rusher and that presence on this defensive line that the Jets have not had in a while. And if you have Lawson healthy on one end, Johnson on another, then you can move John Franklin Myers from defensive end to defensive tackle, which I think he would be a better fit at because, well, he's got good speed for a defensive tackle. He's slow for a defensive end. Put him right next to Quinn and Williams, and that is your main defensive line. You're, you're starting four. Now, you'll still mix in guys like Sheldon Rankins, um, Bryce Hopp, uh, Vinnie Curry based on situations, but that's going to be your main four guys. And like I said before, I'm happy. I'm excited about the way night one went for the draft for the Jets in the draft and how this draft went in general, but still got to see it all play out on the field before I go too crazy and start making predictions and prognostications about their upcoming season like I've seen some people do um, on television and sports radio. All right, a lot left to get to today. Uh, talk more about uh, the draft. A lot of trades went down on night one. I think it was a record night of trades. Some that were surprising, some that were just like what? As well as mixing thoughts on the NBA playoffs, uh, news made by the Mets today, um, a, a big suspension announced in Major League Baseball. Oh, a lot to get to over the next, um, you know, close to an hour or so. So please, whatever you're doing right now, sit back, relax, help put your feet up on the table if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with. M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also 
know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3. Now, of course, there was going to be a, a lot of, you know, outside the draft chatter. The The biggest story that was going to come, or at least we thought was going to come from this draft, would be potentially the future of Debo Samuel. But what I did not expect, and quite frankly, should have probably saw this coming was comments from Aaron Rodgers. Because as we know, every single week, he needs to put himself at the center of attention of some kind of story, especially because he has a weekly spot on Pat McAfee's show. So there's always going to be something coming from that. You always know that, Pat's going to get him to say something that's going to draw big headlines. And this week, it was the fact that Aaron Rodgers thought with his uh, returning to the Packers that it was going to influence their ability to get a deal done with his uh, teammate, Devontae Adams, and saying that he was a little suspicious surprised uh, that Devontae is back, set, isn't back, said, quote, it was a little surprising with Devontae. Obviously, when I made my decision, I was still thinking he was going to come back. I was very honest with him about my plans and my future, where I saw uh, my career going as far as how many years I want to play, but I felt like he was going to be back. It didn't obviously turn out that way, but I have so much love for Tay and appreciate the time we spent together. As we all know, Devontae Adams couldn't come to a deal with the Packers by the franchise tender date, and they ended up trading him to the Las Vegas Raiders for first and second round picks in this year's draft. And I can understand in some ways Rodgers being somewhat befuddled or possibly annoyed with the franchise, not bringing back his number one weapon. But at the same time, you have to realize you're the highest paid quarterback in NFL history now, a $50 million per year contract. You really thought that they were going to turn around after this and give 
25 to 28 million dollars to Devontae Adams, even if he is arguably the best wide receiver in the sport. I maybe there's some franchises that would consider doing that, especially if they have a quarterback on a lesser contract, but not the Packers. The Packers have always been one of those franchises that builds their team through the draft, thinks that they can replace almost anybody. So when Adams wouldn't play ball with them, they went and uh, traded them away for picks. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised that they didn't use a first one of their two first round picks on a wide receiver as, as foolish to me as it seems. Now they did get two uh, players from what was a very stout Georgia defense last year to improve their pass rush. But you you look at it have they ever drafted a a first round wide receiver no in the Aaron Rodgers era and no they've always given the the problem now though they've always given him good wide receivers you had Greg Jennings and while he was there you drafted Jordy Nelson while the two of them were still there you eventually went and got Devontae Adams. But now, you know, you let Devontae Adams go in a trade. You let Marquez Valdez-Scantling go via free agency. Randall Cobb is more toward the back nine side of his career. And you use your second round draft pick, which I still don't understand why they felt the need to use both of their second round draft picks to trade up 20 spots. That wasn't even the most profounding thing uh, on Thursday night, but trade both of those picks to go up 20 spots to draft a wide receiver that projects to be good, but I don't think is going to be confusing anybody into thinking he's Devontae Adams. And it, no, I don't look well, I don't look at the Packers and say, oh, they got worse. I also don't look at them and say, oh, they've caught up to the Rams or they've caught up to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They you know, the, as long as they have Aaron Rodgers, they're still going to be in the mix. But I I just don't look at them and say, oh, no, the, they are undisputedly the best team in the NFC coming out of this draft, especially when you had a million receivers available in this draft and you could use one of those first round picks to draft Adams replacement. Now it was interesting looking at, at this draft. You know, the, first off, we knew that there were no star talents when it came to the quarterback position coming out here. But there was going to be a lot of questions. Oh, when would be the first quarterback taken? 
well, we only had one quarterback taken on night one. Now, Pittsburgh's Kenny Pickett getting picked by the, ironically, the Pittsburgh Steelers at pick number 20. And what's, what's good about this pick for the Steelers is he doesn't have to start right away. Yep, we all can throw around a bunch of punchlines and you know, jokes about Mitchell Trubisky. But he's going to be given every opportunity to start there right away. He's a at least a professional there at the quarterback position. You know, it didn't work out in Chicago because A, he had horrible coaching, and B, he shouldn't have been drafted as high as he was. I think that's what forced him into the lineup quicker than he probably was physically ready. If he had been, you know, a back half of the first round uh, draft pick, maybe it would have worked out better for him. And he wouldn't have had to have started right away. But for all of these teams, you know, after the Steelers, that draft to the quarterback, whether it's the Falcons, the Titans, Malik Willis, the Panthers taking a shot on Matt Corral, even the Commanders taking a shot with a fifth-round pick on Sam Howling. You know, your ultimate dream here, if you're one of these teams, is that you hit it on these guys. Because then, for five years, you're paying them absolutely nothing. You know, if you're the Falcons, yeah, you have Marcus Mariota coming in as the likely projected day one starter for you in 2022. But your ultimate goal would be at some point for Desmond Ryder to step in as your starting quarterback, for him to be your guy and for him to quickly take off. Even in a year where he's not going to have Calvin Ridley available to him. Because then, like I said, third round pick, you're paying him nothing for five years and you can build the team around him as he develops. I mean, are any of these guys going to develop into the next Russell Wilson or Dak Prescott? No, guys that weren't the high-end draft pick but turned into Pro Bowl caliber quarterbacks, quarterbacks for teams that everything goes right for them. They could make it to the Super Bowl in a given year. Who knows? But they provide their team with a very cheap option for a while to come. Now, we had a bunch of trades on night one, nine the most since this draft expanded to the current three-night format. And, you know, some of these trades, I'm, I'm looking at them. And I'm like, you know, I understand the Saints you know, got a bargain uh, in being able to trade up and draft Chris Olave, especially if Michael Thomas comes back and Jameis Winston is healthy. Remember, Jameis Winston played well before he tore his ACL last year. And he didn't have Michael Thomas at all last season. If you got him 
and then this kid in Alave on two sides with what you've got in your running back room. The Saints can challenge the Buccaneers in the NFC South this year. It is not the craziest thing in the world. But then things started to, to get a little bit weird here. And the, the weirdest thing that we saw in this draft, I, st I still don't understand what the Minnesota Vikings were doing all night long. I mean, you're at number 12, a prime position to add another weapon for Kirk Cousins. And you trade back 20 spots in the first round to pick number 32 just so that you can improve your second round draft pick by 12 spots and get another third round pick? I tell you, you know, you better pray that Lewis Sign turns out to be the real deal at safety for you. You better really pray that these two kids that you drafted in the second round when you jump back from 34 to get two picks from the Packers that Alec Pierce and Ed Ingram turn out to be, you know, more than just solid role player contributors to you. Because otherwise, you're looking at the Minnesota Vikings and you're like, what the hell are you doing? You know, you have a, an opportunity there in the NFC North now with the fact that Adams is gone while Rodgers is still there, does not exactly have an elite room of offensive weapons around him right now. A lot of question marks there. There's at least the opportunity to challenge them. And remember, when they were healthy last year, the Vikings beat the Green Bay Packers last season. So it was. you hope if you're a Viking fan that they know something we don't and and have this thing going in a right direction. Otherwise, it was a very confusing night one for them. You know, probably the only person more confused than the Vikings was Lamar Jackson, who still, as we sit here right now, is probably annoyed as hell that they traded one of his best friends on the team, one of his favorite targets, Marquise Hollywood Brown. Traded him um, and a third-round pick to the Cardinals for the 23rd overall pick that they would eventually turn that in a trade to the Bills and get uh, Iowa center uh, Tyler Limbaugh. And that's going to help you know protect Lamar coming off of what was an injury-plague season where we didn't see him after Halloween. But he was... Uh, tweeting, you know, what the hell is going on here? WTF seemed pretty annoyed as night went on, but I, I think it's clear the Ravens, you know, well, you have to have decent wide receivers. The Ravens offense is not predicated around wide receivers. That's why they've had a hard time getting these guys in free agency. You know that, and that even though it was with late round draft picks, they went and drafted two more tight ends uh, over the weekend. So I think it's kind of clear. They're going to get back to what was 
the 2019 style of Baltimore Ravens football, where it's going to be a lot of Lamar um, with read action and mixing in uh, the dump offs to his tight ends led by Mark Andrews. Yeah, he's uh, annoyed. Probably, who knows if he was told in advance about the Brown trade, but he should have seen the signs coming. For God's sakes, Hollywood Brown was at the Cardinals draft party. If that does not read that he's he knows something that we don't, then I don't know what to tell you. Plus, Hollywood Brown, former teammates with Kyler Murray at Oklahoma. So, now, now this is another weapon for Kyler Murray as he goes into a year demanding a new contract. Really can't complain anymore. Kyler, you know, the franchise is doing everything in their power to set you up for success for the future. Now, if you're a Ravens fan, you know, Lamar keeps pushing off and off signing his contract extension. Does a move like this potentially set him up for looking at the open market in two years and saying, hmm, maybe there's a greener pasture somewhere, somewhere that I'll stay healthier by not having to rely on my legs so much, somewhere that is going to put up weapons around me. You know, maybe, and I don't want to get Eagles fans' hopes up with this, but could Philadelphia be a destination for him? Because the pressure was put on Jalen Hurts over this weekend. Now, clearly with the the fact that the Eagles weren't strong in the negotiations to trade for the likes of Russell Wilson or Deshaun Watson and make a big upgrade at the quarterback position. They're committed to Jalen Hurts for, at the very minimum, the 2022 season. And now they've put a boatload of weapons around them. Now, they, they made two big trades on night one. One trading up two spots, giving up four picks to draft Georgia defensive tackle Jordan Davis, who many had ticketed for the Baltimore Ravens. And now instead of being mentored by uh, the, by Calais Campbell, he's going to be mentored by Fletcher Cox. Not a, not a bad alternative there. But... The big news for the Eagles on draft night was them getting A.J. Brown from the Tennessee Titans, where as that trade was being made, I'm sure you could hear the sound of Ryan Tannehill throwing something at the wall in frustration, especially when you saw the contract extension that the Eagles were willing to give him. This trade had to have been in the works for a while. The fact that, you know, within five seconds of the trade being announced, you're you're already seeing Ian Rappaport and Adam Schefter come out with the announcement of his new four-year, $100 million contract extension with uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. But now you add him to the mix there. You already had Devontae Smith. Jalen Rager gets pushed back in the depth charts. You have uh, 
Quez Watkins, another young wide receiver there. You've got two good running backs in Miles Sanders and Boston Scott. You've got Dallas Goddard at your tight end. You know, they've set up Jalen Hurts for success here. And it'd be a great thing for the Eagles because, like I said before, he's not a first-round pick. They're not paying him big money for another three years here. So if next year he takes that next step and the Eagles go from being a wild card playoff team to now, as some people are projecting, the favorite, the front runner in the NFC East, you know, the weapons are there for this team to have success long-term. It's all about the quarterback taking that next step. And if he doesn't do it, like I said, Lamar Jackson, he's a free agent on the horizon. And they could just, you know, go out there once again, wheel and deal, and maybe try to get him. Remember, they do have two first-round picks in next year's draft. Maybe if... The Ravens can't get something done long-term with them. They can entice him, them into taking both of those picks off their hands, and they could have their long-term answer at quarterback if things don't work out with Hurts this season. All right, going to take another break here. Come back on the other side. Turn my attention to the NBA playoffs and a big injury, and I mean big injury, that could really impact things. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3. Now, as I said earlier, mostly a positive vibes kind of Monday with the Yankees being on the nine-game winning streak, the Mets winning all seven of all of their first seven series of the season for the first time in franchise history. Both the Jets and Giants having a 
on paper. Pretty good uh, drafts this weekend. All the way around, you would think it's you know, positive vibes. You know, with the exception, of course, the Brooklyn Nets, who a week ago tonight, their season came to a crashing halt getting swept by the Boston Celtics. And I said this to a bunch of friends of mine over the last you know, week, that this is kind of karma for everything that has happened in the last, what, eight months when it comes to this team. I mean, this was, since I became a Nets fan in 2000, the most frustrating most annoying season of Brooklyn Nets slash New Jersey Nets basketball I've ever watched. Now, between losing Joe Harris early on to an injury, and I don't think people realize how important a piece he was, and that kind of began the slow downfall of this team from them being in first place in January to then having to fight for their lives for a play-in seating. I remember originally they were not going to do the whole home road game thing uh, with Kyrie Irving, but then there were injuries, they got heavily affected by COVID, and they had to cave and enable him with his nonsense all year long. You had KD's injury in the middle of January that... They went from being in first place uh, with them healthy all the way down to a sixth or seventh seed by the time he was ready to come back. James Harden quit on this team. Second year in a row, he's done that. What a surprise. Ben Simmons coming here and him never playing between first the whole ramp-up process, which you wonder how that would take so long. If he's truly committed to his craft, a guy that has not played, you would think in eight months at that time, you would think that, oh, it would just take a couple weeks. But they talked about it like it was a, a month-long process. And then all of a sudden, he comes down with a back injury. And just when it looks like he's ready to go for <laughs> the playoffs, play in game four, when they're on the verge to get swept, he suddenly comes in, starts complaining about uh, the back being a problem once again. And then, you know, listen, I I do take the mental health stuff very seriously, but not a lot of people out there actually believe that there's something mentally wrong with this guy. Most people think that it's a, a crutch just to put himself in the best possible way position you you had Steve Nash um essentially just being a babysitter for this team he was never a real coach here and then you know no defense in big spots for this team so now quite frankly this is kind of karma for the Brooklyn Nets for them to be the only team that was swept in the first round, and likely the only team that will be swept in this entire playoffs. I and mean, you look at some of these other teams that could have gotten swept. The, you know, teams like the Bucks. I mean, the, not the Bucks, the Bulls, the Hawks, uh, the the Nuggets, the Raptors. 
they showed a little something called pride, showed some gumption here, showed some will, some fight during uh, th this postseason. You know, the, the Hawks, who, you know, quite frankly, you look at them, that they got nothing out of Trey Young in this series. He shot 18% from three-point uh, range. They at least managed to win a game against the Miami Heat, went down fighting. The Bulls, even with all the injuries they've dealt with at, at their guards uh, this year and the lack of size, were able to squeak out a win against the Milwaukee Bucks just based on, based on heart and guts and you know, a little bit of help with Chris Middleton getting hurt in game two. The Raptors put on a battle against the 76ers, even getting to the point where, you know, once they squeak past, you know, games five and six or game five and getting a win there and dominating uh, the Sixers in the paint, people start saying, oh, with Doc Rivers' history in closeout games, could they become that first team in NBA history? to come back from three games down and not just force a game seven, but come back and win the series. Now, it would be too much of a task for them to overcome. You know, the 76ers put their foot on their throat in the third quarter on uh, Thursday night with that 17-0 run started by those three threes by um, Maxi that essentially put uh, this game away. But they, even without Fred Van Feet and guys in the in out of the lineup all series long, they showed a lot of toughness and showed a lot of you know will to not get swept by a clearly more talented team. And you know the Nuggets, you know they put up a as much of a battle as they possibly could against the Warriors. It's just you know. Jokic does not have his second and third best player of there. He did not have Jamal Murray, did not have Michael Porter Jr. Now, in the end, would it have made a difference? I don't think they were winning that series. But you have those two guys available for them. At least they have a fighting shot. At least you're saying, wow, you could see this series go six, seven games. You could see them put together, you know, a real threat for Golden State and to have someone defensively in Michael Porter as some length from the perimeter so that the Warriors weren't just having a field day from three-point arc. But, you know, you you know what all those teams had that the the Nets didn't those teams had no off the court drama. Those teams were 100% committed to basketball. Something that you can't fully say for the Nets 100% of the time. Now, elsewhere in the first round, a cute fight by the Pelicans, but uh, in the end, uh, you know, talent prevailed. Plus, I thought that the Suns got very much willed on in game six. By the fact that, let's face it, Devin Booker was out there most of that game on one leg. After not playing for 10 days, missing the second half of game three, 
missing all of games four and five. He did not want this to go to a do or die game seven at home where, yeah, they would be at home, but <laughs> we've seen in the past, Chris Paul has his playoff demons. While he has his great games, hasn't exactly come up in the clutch as much as you would want him to. But he had probably the best game of his Hall of Fame uh, uh, career on uh, Thursday night, going a perfect 18 for 18, 14 for 14 from the field, 4 for 4 from the foul line. And what hurt the Pelicans in the end is a guy that was emerging as a good young star for them in Brandon Ingram, who was awesome games two through four, had slip-ups in games five and six and was not able to carry over that offensive momentum that he had built in the first couple of games. Plus, as I said, you know, teams get sometimes get you know motivation from unexpected things. And I'm sure no one in their right mind thought with the injury that Devin Booker had that he was going to be available to play in the remainder of this series. You know, last week we were talking about how this could be a two to three week injury. And here he is rolling back out there for Thursday night. And while he didn't shoot the ball that well from the field at all, just his presence out there, A, created a decoy for others, and B, had to take a lot of pressure off Chris Paul and had to make that a very relaxing 18 for 18 from the field and the foul line combined. Now they'll move on to play the Dallas Mavericks in the second round of series starting tonight where, you know, you look at that series and the Mavericks do a great job in advancing here. But now it is going to begin the talk of the future of Donovan Mitchell in Utah. And Donovan Mitchell's coming off of an awful series. He, he shot all of 20% from behind the three-point arc after being a, about a uh, 36% shooter in uh, the uh, regular season. The team in general was horrible from behind the arc. And we're getting, you know, every night had another one of these secondary or tertiary players for the Mavericks that were stepping up and having a big moment from whether it's Brunson, whether it's Dimwitty. And you, you just look at this Jazz team and you, you wonder, you know, is Donovan Mitchell going to force the issue and force his way out? of Utah this coming summer. Is this something that you're going to start seeing on all the New York tabloids, radio stations, uh, sports talk shows in the coming weeks and months to come, them screaming for the Knicks to go out there and make the big move for Donovan Mitchell. Now, the second round of the playoffs began yesterday with the Bucks versus the Celtics and the Warriors against the Grizzlies. Bucks playing without Chris Middleton. And you know what decided this game was now not just the fact that 
Giannis is a freak and cannot be stopped is the fact that the Celtics not only were careless with the basketball, but their carelessness, the Bucs were able to turn into uh, great scoring opportunities. They outscored them 27-6 to on uh, turnover. Uh, uh, the Bucs didn't take advantage of any of the, or the Celtics, excuse me, did not take advantage of any turnovers by the Bucs. And the Bucs, you know, were great on fast break, outscoring them by 20 points there. And you know that Giannis, as much of an improved shooter as he's become, he is just like a bullet through the lane there. When he gains his, has his momentum, he's essentially unstoppable in uh, the paint. Doesn't matter. You put one body on him, two bodies on him. He's going to find his way to the ring because he's become such a bigger, much more bulkier guy can take and absorb the contact over the last couple of years. And, you know, this was a game, you know, it's set up for the Celtics to win considering they're at home. The, the Bucks are without their second best player. The Celtics are relatively healthy. But Tatum and Brown both had off shooting nights. And when you get a bad night from both of these guys, it's not going to set well for uh, the uh, Celtics, especially when they're going up uh, against a team with the uh, two-time MVP in Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yesterday was big for the Warriors because you started to get concerned toward the end of their series with the Nuggets, that maybe Jordan Poole is running out of gas. Maybe uh, some of the air in his balloon to stardom is starting to fade just a bit. But he was able to bounce back with 30 points off the bench, and they needed every bit of that with the killer at the end of the first half, them losing Draymond Green for the flagrant two foul against Brandon Clark. And now it's a bit debated back and forth. Was that truly a flagrant two foul? Did that warrant an ejection? I didn't think so much so that the hands to the face was bad, but the grab of the jersey and the pull down, even though he did try to catch him, When you're someone like Draymond Green, as much as I like and respect him as a player, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt. You're not going to get the benefit of a call here in uh, that scenario. And he was quick to point that out in his podcast after the game. It's funny. He doesn't talk to the media. He was quick to jet out of the building after this game but runs right back to, I guess, his hotel room or wherever it is that he records his podcast, The Draymond Green Show, and is talking about the game and breaking down why he thought he he got ejected and that it was a reputation thing here. But the main problem for the Grizzlies here, while you were able to overcome three fourth-quarter deficits to the Minnesota Timberwolves. This was a game 
just like in the case of the Celtics, this was a game set up for you to win because Draymond, their emotional leader, gets ejected in the first half. Then you've got Klay Thompson, who's having an off night from the field with the fact that Morant's uh, putting up 34. You're getting uh, 33 from uh, Jaron Jackson. You're thinking, oh, the, the Grizzlies are set up to go up 1-0 in uh, this series. And then as you're watching Clay drain that three with 30 seconds uh, left, you realize and remember why the Warriors have won three titles in uh, the last eight years. It's not just because Kevin Durant came to uh, Golden State. It's because they have a mentality. They have a philosophy there that no, no matter what happens, no matter what the scenario, we feel we can overcome things. We lose our emotional leader and still are able to pull off a victory even in a night where Curry wasn't great, where Clay Thompson um, outside of his uh, big late three, was awful from the, the field. And even with all of that working against the Warriors, they go up 1-0. And if you're a Grizzly, member of the Grizzlies and a member of their fan base today, you're sitting there saying to yourself, how the hell do we win this series if all of that was going in our favor? And we still can't get game one in our own building. Got to take one last break here. Come back on the other side. Close things up for this week. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Only a few minutes left here, but a couple more things I wanted to get to on this week's podcast. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Mets currently have not just the best record in the National League East, but have the best record in all of the National League. 
Now we sit here on the second day of May and you could argue the top two teams in baseball reside in the confines of New York City. But with it getting to the month of May, teams had to make rostered decisions as you would be chopping down from the 28-man roster you started the season with back down to a 26-man roster. And there was going to be an interesting decision some people call dilemma for the Mets to have to answer. And that being, who do they keep? Dominic Smith or Robinson Cano? Dominic Smith, who heading into this weekend had gotten off to a slow-ish start, but he had four hits last night, had, drove in three runs, has shown that he still has a very good glove at first base. And a lot of Met fans have been out crying that he should be in the lineup on a regular basis. You know, five or six days a week, whether you're playing him at DH, give him some time in left field. Um, I've said before, I think the best lineup for the Mets is Dom Smith at first base and Pete Alonso as the designated hitter. We'll see if they continue to be stubborn about that because clearly Pete's defense is an issue with this team. Then there was the other two options. Could you send down a pitcher or do you do what they did today? And this surprised me, but it was the right move to do. Team-wise, as far as roster construction-wise, and that's designate for assignment Robinson Cano before he will ultimately eventually be released. No one's going to claim him off waivers because he's got 40 million dollars coming to him. But let's face it, Cano's been awful for the Mets this year coming off of his one-year suspension. He's has eight hits in 41 at-bats, one of those hits being a bunt single in the first couple of weeks in the season. He has not made a, a lot of you know, great contact where you say, oh, he can you know, overcome uh, this slow start. I believe, looking at it, he struck out 11 times in 41 at-bats so far. And there's not much left in the tank for Robinson Cano. Hell, now that we think about it, the fact that he's been suspended twice for performance-enhancing drugs, twice in the last five years, who knows what was exactly real for this guy? Was it just when he went to Seattle? Was he doing this with the Yankees? In all likelihood, you have to think he was, considering... He was close with A-Rod, and he got busted twice. Uh, he was close with Melky Cabrera, and he got a hefty suspension for performance-enhancing drugs. I mean, what do you really look at and say was the real Robinson Cano? And now he – and this may be the end of his career. I mean, for all we know, the fact that he's – not been good this year. He has not exactly been 
a great player for the Mets per se. He's 39 years old. Who knows um, who's going to be willing to take a shot on a 39-year-old second baseman, it, whether it's as a part-time player or a regular. This might have been the last we've seen of this guy in uh, the big leagues, and it go- ends in a very uh, disflattering, disgraceful fashion. Now, two things quick with uh, the uh, Mets. Uh, A, you saw the uh, the fight that they got into with the Cardinals uh, this weekend or this week. Can't even really call it a fight. There wasn't exactly punches thrown, a lot of pushing and shoving. There was a coach on the Cardinals uh, pulling Pete Alonzo to the ground because you know, I don't blame him for being furious, being one to flip out considering he's been hit twice in the head this year. But the Mets had to start standing up for themselves. They couldn't keep being human pin cushions for the rest of the league to throw their weight around on. So, you know, the, you like the, the morale here, the fact that, you know, veterans are paying fines for young pitchers that are getting uh, punished for retaliation. But the Mets, you know, they... They couldn't just continue, you know, that this is past Mets stuff. They have to show this is a new day. This is a new time in Mets history. We're not going to put up with people just pushing us around like this. That has to be their mentality. That has to be um, Mets ownership mentality. That has to be Mets fans mentality. You know, so much so... All the time you see this with fan bases, with the Mets and with the Jets here, that there's this waiting for the floor to cave in on them mindset, waiting for things to go wrong, things to go bad. And that's what continues teams like them in a tailspin. That can what continues them being, you know, always one of these woe-beyond franchises. You have a new owner, you have a new manager who I'm not going to be truly judging him until you get to October and you see what happens when he has to try to overcome his uh, postseason demons. But, you know, this team is off to a very good start. There needs to be a positive mindset with Met fans right now. Hell, you got... Decent news, I would say, on Jacob DeGrom a week ago tonight or a week ago today. When he returns, remains to be seen. He still has to go through a ramp-up phase uh, before he can start throwing. I think you're now looking at a scenario where you know, we may not see him until the one-year mark of him initially being shut down July 7th, considering he's going to have to go through a full spring training process. And while they said the the MRI last week revealed considerable healing in the the initial stress reaction of his scapula, he's still going to go undergo another MRI two weeks from right now. So two weeks from now, that's 
May 16th. And by then, he's still not going to be picking up a baseball. And gonna once he does, you're looking at at least six weeks before you get DeGrom back. It's going to be kind of a spring training process for him. So it's going to be a while before you get him. But when you do, it's like making a big-time trade for a great pitcher as long as he's healthy. Now, quickly, just to get to this, the big news in baseball last week was the announcement of Trevor Bauer's two-year suspension by MLB based on their findings in this investigation they've been doing for about nine months when it comes to uh, domestic violence, when it comes to um, potential assault that he was dealing with based on claims of a woman a woman last summer. Hell, there's now since then been claims from two other women. And who knows if those are true? Who knows if there's any validity to that or whether it's these are women that were scared before and now willing to come forward or they're you know looking for their time in the sun. You know, you hope that's not the case, but you have to take every one of these cases seriously until proven otherwise. A lot of people are out there screaming, complaining, oh, why is he getting punished by MLB? He, it was already ruled that he's not going to face any criminal charges, and this case looks like it's going to be settled out of court um, with some kind of big payday from uh, the initial woman, although he is trying to fight tooth and nail against that. Well, MLB, just like all of these other sports leagues, does not need a guilty conviction to suspend someone. And let's remember, it wasn't that he was exonerated, he was ruled innocent. It, he was ruled that there was not enough evidence evidence against him for this to go to trial, just like it was ruled that same way in the Deshaun Watson case. Now, I, I don't I sometimes don't understand some of these sports fans when it comes to some of these you know domestic violence um, situations. They'll look for any excuse in the world to defend the pro athlete. Uh, even from getting any kind of punishment, even if they're not ruled not guilty, they'll say, oh, it's not going to trial, then why should he be punished by the sport? Because just because the court saying that it doesn't have to go to trial doesn't mean he's exactly innocent of doing something wrong. And baseball has the right to punish them if they see fit. And Maybe some of this punishment is a reputation punishment because of, A, he's not exactly the most popular human being in the world, doesn't carry himself in a great way. Some of his views in the past, 
that that's not here for that or there. But what I will say is this, when it comes to this punishment, I ex have a lot of doubt that he's going to serve a 324 game suspension. It's not that all that time from July 2nd on when he's been on an, an administrative leave, that's going to count as part of su suspension. No, it's the second that this was announced the middle of last week, it's 324 games from that moment. What I think is going to eventually happen is the, the Dodgers, they're going to continue with him being on administrative leave here. Eventually, there will be some kind of arbitration case in this. And the arbitrator will rule in him being suspended through, say, midway of next year. He'll get 162-game suspension rather than 324 games. But baseball was just being safe in putting such a high number on it, knowing that if they went too low and then the arbitrator came back and ruled against them and cut it in half, that it would look like they really did nothing and showing that, hey, activity, while you're not going to jail or anything, activity like this it cannot be tolerated. Activity like this cannot be allowed. You need to be shown that it's a privilege to play this game, not a right. Now, for the final time, hopefully during this basketball season, I'm going to address Kyrie Irving. Because Kyrie Irving, once again, has to make himself the story, the headline of everything that goes on with the Brooklyn Nets. Even after them getting eliminated, he decides to make a clown of himself. When he's talking about his extension during the postgame press conference, saying, quote, when I say I'm here with Kev, I think it really entails us managing this franchise together. In terms of my extension, I don't plan on going anywhere. He would mention, you know, owner Joe Sy, uh, general manager Sean Marks. Didn't mention the head coach Steve Nash. What give, really gives you the right to think that you should have any control, any power in this organization whatsoever? Because... Kevin Durant has shown when he's healthy and able to play, he's willing to play. But you, you look for any excuse in the world not to play. Whether it was when you had your shoulder cleaned up right at the beginning of the pandemic, and then, <coughs> excuse me, you couldn't go to the bubble and you started uh bringing up that, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this uh, because it would prevent attention being on social injustice. Um, then you took off after January 6th for two weeks. You were AWOL from the team. No one could even reach you. That led to Nets realizing they had to make the James Harden trade, and that eventually blew up in their face. And then there's this year 
where you said you didn't want to take the vaccine, not because you're against vaccines, but you wanted to be the voice of the voiceless for all the essential workers in New York City who were losing their jobs due to not getting vaccinated. But did you really help anything? Did you really solve anything? Because the mandate from originally set by past New York um, um, Mayor um, de Blasio and eventually changed by current um, New York Mayor Eric Adams, it didn't get changed right when you wanted to get changed, right when you were deciding to put your feet in the sand and say, oh, I'm going to be the precipice of change. No, it was changed in the end of March as COVID numbers started coming down, as hospitalizations and death totals were coming down to a pre-pandemic level. And this virus that was once considered almost a death warrant has mutated to the point where we now as a society can manage things and start to get back to a real true sense of normalcy. What did you really, you know, you want to act like you lost out on so much that, oh, you're some kind of victim. You still made, you know, $25 million this year. Hell, you're still probably going to get a contract that pays you anywhere in the range of $175 to $200 million. Hell, I wouldn't do it. I would make this guy play year to year and fight for his money because he's proven unreliable. He's proven that he can't be counted on for being there game in, game out, being there for... 82 games in a season, not just because of health concerns, but because anytime something pops up, it's, oh, I can't play. I can't be available for my team. Everyone boo who may make me look out to be the victim here. When, like I said before, if it wasn't for this vaccine, if it wasn't, this wasn't an issue, and he was allowed to play. And let's face it, to be fair here, the rule was kind of a BS rule. When you consider visiting players who were unvaccinated could still come to the Barclays Center at Madison Square Garden and play, but he couldn't. That uh, I agree with. That was a bogus part of the rule. But you know damn well, and I'll, I'll take this to my grave, you know damn well that if it wasn't that, he would have still found some reason not to play and that not being medical issues. Hell, you know, the second Kevin Durant went down with an injury, he would have come up with some kind of excuse saying, oh, why he can't play. But, oh, when he's putting up 60 points, when he's putting up 55 points in a game, he wants all the attention on, on him. He wants it to all be about himself. That's why he comes out looking like such a delusional hypocrite when he goes on 
rants on Twitter last Thursday like he did when he said, quote, when I see my name or my brother's slash sister's names getting spun through the media, I refer to all of my research about who they are. Their job is to control public perception all while profiting off discussing, discrediting, and disrespecting people's lives for entertainment. I send shots at the puppet masters, not the puppets. All puppets do is run around society trying to gain popularity and state opinions. What a life. My name is worth billions to these media corporations. My brothers and sisters who deal with this know exactly what I mean. A lot of these media corporations make their money by degrading black slash African American slash Indonesia's community heroes. They thrive off it. They sell it back to us by having a hand selected person or group of people spark controversy about them uh, for the world to see. Just watch all the people who wake up every day and report about people's lives on TV, social media, and profit off of them. Then they justify their jobs by saying they get paid to say how they feel. LOL. It's a, a lot like these people live in a fantasy. The only person who's living in a fantasy, Kyrie, is you. Okay? You're the one that tries to control public perception by saying that, oh, you're going to be the voice of the voiceless and then do absolutely nothing about it. Or take time off after January 6th where, yeah, all of us with a working conscience, with a working heart, were affected in some negative way. There's not one person outside of who was actually there, unless you're our former president, that doesn't think that that was wrong. All right? You're not a puppet. You're the puppet master. You try to control the narrative and try to spin it into something that is not there. And you're saying, oh, all these media corporations, they're making money um, off of uh, the uh, community heroes of black and African-American communities. Well, what are you doing? You're making that same money off endorsements, off of Jersey TV um, sales, T-shirt sales, your autograph, your likeness, and you're the one providing the fodder. You're the one that's providing the information for them to talk about each and every single day. And you're going to uh, wake up every day and act like, oh, we're in the wrong, that we're living in some fantasy world. Now, you wonder sometimes how some people look themselves in the mirror. You, you wonder how sometimes some people can look at themselves and say, oh, I'm the one in the right and everybody else is wrong. Clearly... As I said, this guy is as delusional an athlete as you're ever going to see. And clearly, he's has too many yes-men around him. Too many people that are not willing to tell him that your own shit does, in fact, stink. And at some point, 
it's going to be the detriment of his own basketball career. And unfortunately, as a Brooklyn Net fan, it's going to be the detriment of this franchise, especially if and when they choose to extend him long-term this offseason. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 for Monday, May 2nd, 2022. Everyone have a great night. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Have fun. Whatever you may be doing. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.